Welcome, everyone, to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome, everyone. <laughs> this is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And I'm absolutely beyond delighted to have the opportunity to interview Dr. Robert Malone. This is the second time we've had him on. Uh, first was well before his most famous podcast, but I initially saw him on the first podcast he was on that really brought him to prominence and in terms of recognition with his, with his interview with uh, uh, Dr. Brett, or Brett Weinstein on the Dark Horse podcast with Steve Kirsch. He was interesting. I had never heard of him before. He just came out of nowhere. And But it, his intelligence, his insights, his wisdom, his humility was, was obvious. It was just so obvious. It was profound. And uh, he, he is actually a stark contrast to, to Steve Kirsch. And interestingly, both of those people, Steve and Dr. Malone, have really come to prominence now as some of the leaders in, in this whole effort to expose the fraud that they're doing. So, and many of you have seen his podcast with Joe Rogan, which was on New Year's Eve, and I actually watched it live. Uh, it was three hours of amazing information, but so many people felt the same way because it broke all records. He he broke the world record of the mo of the most broadcast or the most viewed podcast of all time, was which was previously what two weeks earlier, three weeks earlier with Joe Rogan and Peter McCullough, and then Dr. Malone broke it. Uh, fifty million fifty million views. It's probably beyond that. I wouldn't doubt if it's close to 100 million views at this point. So, um, and, and then even beyond that, he, during that interview, many of you may recall that he introduced a term to the world, the mass formation psychosis, that uh, nearly instantaneously had Google in real time manipulating the search results for that term to discredit and give misinformation about it. But it also worked and helped to promote the work of Dr. Matthias Desmet, who is, uh, I believe, you consider one of your mentors in, in this area. And he certainly wrote the book. He's a clinical psychologist at the University of Ghent in Belgium. And uh, he actually just has a new book, which is uh, that I interviewed him for recently, The, the Psychology of Totalitarianism. So, uh, and Dr. Malone, you're on because you also have a new book. So before I let you discuss, I just want to thank you for your enormous bravery, your courage, your convictions, and you're, you're using your God-given gifts. I mean, you're so smart. You're one of the brightest guys in this field. You're the I think you're, you know, there's a whole dispute about you being the developer, not certainly not the developer of the, the COVID jabs, but the technology underlined at the mRNA platform to deliver them is, you know, you've got multiple patents proving that you invented it. So you're a thought leader and, and you've been massively discredited and that's a sign that you're doing the right thing. So I want to thank you for everything you're doing in this and, and welcome you to, uh, share some additional insights with us. Well, thank you. That's quite an introduction. I don't know if I can live up to it. At first, I thought you were talking about Brett Weinstein. Um, <laughs> uh, so, uh, 
And I, and I take a little bit of umbrage that I've been massively discredited. I've certainly been massively attacked as you have, but uh, you and I share the uh, benefits of the tincture of time in that uh, over time we're being validated almost on a daily basis. So discredited, I would say we've been attacked. I would, have, I would say we've been gaslighted, ridiculed, um, defamed, but I don't think we've been discredited. I think we can both hold our heads up high and, and we've called it amazingly well, quite presciently. I just in the middle of reviewing um, and building the chapters for the book that has to do with what's gone wrong with the HHS and what we need to fix, which includes a litany of things uh, that have been miscalled by the CDC. The list is enormous. Uh, and, and we continue to see on a daily basis, uh, the uh, weaponization of fear porn and uh, the two most recent examples being the monkeypox uh, and uh, now the uh, Omicron, what they're calling Ninja, uh, BA.4 and 0.5, uh, uh, Ninja being the term that's being applied, you know, uh, if, we, if we didn't need a, a more egregious example of fear porn, just the choice of the name would do. Uh, <laughs> And, and, um, and the documentation that is being put out to scare us that these are uh, so uh, such high risks when in fact uh, the data are quite clear that the hospitalization rate is not bumping up even though the infection rate is. And of course there is the um, uh, dark prospect that Gert von den Bosche has been uh, uh, warning us about for so long, and, and I have too, about the risks of vaccinating into a pandemic, driving the evolution of escape mutants. And we not only see that uh, quite um, blatantly with the new Ninja variant, uh, just pretty much as many of us have uh, projected, but we also now see the thing that the CDC and the FDA are completely ignoring, which is immune imprinting, which is backed up now by over 10 high-end, uh, highly visible peer-reviewed publications in journals like Science, Nature, and Self. Um, we're literally uh, driving the highly vaccinated to an immune-compromised state in which they're more susceptible to infection by Omicron as a consequence of their prior vaccination. And they are becoming chronically or multiply infected, which is precisely the situation that's been shown in peer-reviewed literature to be driving the development of the further, further development of the escape mutants. So our, our public policies are completely contrary to the need uh, here. They are, are uh, just, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, speechless uh, uh, concerning the mismatch between our government and what it's promoted, and uh, what the true public health need is. And and so I honor you in your speaking out from the onset about many of these things and raising your concerns, going back to I think our first interview. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, and I, again, just to put a pin on it, I don't think we have anything to apologize for compared to what the, the missed calls of the CDC, I think we are way, way ahead. 
Yes, indeed. So I want to highlight another example of your unbelievable commitment and dedication, especially in light of what you just shared about the monkeypox. Because when it first came out, there was a lot of concern because it was novel, but I think the whole ability of the entire alternative media, media community, and especially to bring experts to the forefront like you and spread the information, essentially aborted it, aborted their efforts for the fear porn. But as an example of your dedication, I remember watching a video interview with you with R RFK, Robert Kennedy Jr. And uh, you were on a boat it, and on your well-deserved vacation, I believe in the Mediterranean. And Bobby didn't understand that he was in California when he was calling you at his, his late afternoon or early evening. It was 2 a.m. in the morning for you. And yet you had no compunction but to get out of bed and put on your suit and do an interview with him. And you were just incredible, your kindness, humility, your knowledge and sharing to quell the fear porn that was being generated at that point. I think you did a lot to combat it. So thank you for your commitments. Well, thank you very much. I, I, as far as I'm concerned, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is a great American hero. Mm -hmm. he, he has done so many things with his life. He's overcome amazing averse, uh, hardship. I, I can't imagine what it must have been like to be a child uh, with the experiences that he had with, his, with the two assassinations. And to overcome that, and uh, play this prominent role in Waterkeepers, in the lawsuit against Monsanto for Roundup, and now the leadership that he's shown in children's self-defense, just asking questions and raising concerns, concerns that are not allowed to be spoken about concerning the Vaccines for Children program and the history of vaccination and childhood vaccines in the United States, he, it has taken an enormous toll on him personally um, in ways that I, I don't even want to discuss in public. But um, nonetheless, he has persevered. I, I think, I, I, I got to say, um, Dr. McCullough, of, of all the things that have happened to me over the last two and a half years since this outbreak, all the things that I've encountered. One of the things that I value most has been the coming to learn uh, with, learn from, uh, experience the uh, wisdom and insight and humanism, fundamental humanism of RFK Jr. I, I can't say enough. Uh, and, and I, I believe he truly is a great American hero. Uh, if, if there's anybody that deserves a Nobel Peace Prize, I believe he's, he's got to be a candidate. And I, I am just honored to consider him a friend. And every time he, he calls me, no matter where I am, I do what I can to try to help him. Well, thank you for your commitment and uh, honoring uh RFK with uh, those comments. So I want to address an, uh, a relatively minor elephant in the room, but nevertheless one. And uh, because I, I regularly scan the comments on my site and there's a, not a significant number, but there's a number of people who think you're a controlled opposition. And why yes. would they think, why would they think <laughs> that? So I want to put that root, that that nasty rumor to rest here and now, but let me just expand on it and you can comment. So the, the, their justification for that thought is that you are the developer for the foundation of the mRNA technology, 
and you've been double jabbed. So they, 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 it, it just shocks me that anyone is, who has critical thinking skills left would even ever come to that conclusion if they ever seriously evaluated your content. So can you, I know you'll be a lot more articulate and effective at, at uh, trouncing that, that notion than I could be. So if you could. Well, let, let me expand on it. It's the, the storyline here is even um, stronger than what you say. I have historically worked with people that have been uh, truly deep state intelligence community. I've, I have uh, decades of experience in biodefense. I have been deep in the belly of the beast. Mm -hmm. I have won uh, literally billions of dollars for my clients in grants and contracts. Uh, I um, have managed um, hundreds of millions of dollars in grants and contracts in the vaccine space. Uh, I sit on, or historically used to, I don't think they're not inviting me lately, uh, um, uh, the, as study section chair or key study section member on many uh, hundred plus million dollar contract uh, grant uh, uh, contract reviews for typically the NIH and particularly the NIAID, but also DOD. I, I am deeply, have historically been deeply embedded in this whole enterprise. I know it upside down. I've sat on way too many in, in the, in the uh, audience for way too many ACIP meetings, often commented. Uh, I understand this system. So the, I think the concerns that I could be controlled opposition are valid. I think that it's appropriate to acknowledge the basis for those concerns. Uh, now, the, uh, the concerns, uh, I think, are refuted by my behaviors and actions. Uh, starting, let's start with the inventorship. I have many patents. I've contributed to the development of many technologies. Uh, my wife and I helped found Inovia, the electroporation or post-electrical field uh, gene delivery company that is promoting its own vaccine technology, which is a DNA-based platform and could well be adapted to RNA-based vaccines. I certainly have those uh, nine initial issued patents and others that relate to virtually any delivery system used to administer polynucleotides to the nasal pharynx to mucosal tissues to elicit a mucosal immune response, which as you know is uh, the huge benefit of Omicron natural infection is that it produces a mucosal immune response in the infected individuals that's highly protective. I have many patents on various catalytic lipids, uh, these positively charged fats that are used to deliver the polynucleotides. But I'm, I'm also an objective scientist. And as a consequence of the decades of experience in basic uh, discovery research in this area, we've turned away from this technology because we could never overcome the inflammatory problems, uh, this acute immune response and the recruitment of inflammatory cells into the injected tissues. We ran into this again and again and again uh, both in mice and then in monkeys, and could never overcome it. We abandoned the technology, and uh, then Katie Carrico called me up 
in the mid nineties and wanted some advice. And I told her about the problems with the RNA and the problems with the inflammatory response. And together with Drew Weissman, she applied the pseudouridine discoveries that were just emerging and put pseudouridine all the way through the RNA, which is both immunosuppressive and increases the half-life of the RNA so that these RNAs that are now being used are really nothing like the natural RNA, their synthetic product. And this is the basis for their assertion that they're the true inventors and I am not, despite all the prior art and multiple patents, is that they made this improvement on the art that was enabling. The CureVac technology demonstrates that that's not enabling, that in fact you can get good immune responses with mRNA that does not include pseudouridine. But I had turned away from the tech. There was uh, better ways to uh, provide an immune response, I believed. Those are still investigational. And uh, I have a very, I have talked about eyes wide open. I have intimate understanding of the good, the bad, and the ugly of this approach and this technology. And that's always been my position is that of an objective scientist. So I don't, and then on the last point on this, I never received substantial revenue of any kind from my inventions. The patents were filed from a company that's now defunct called Vical that had partnered with Merck years ago. Over a billion dollars were spent to advance the technology. Merck and Vical only focused on the DNA and they failed. Uh, but as a consequence of the terms of my employment, I received in addition to my technician salary, which was about 20,000 a year, uh, I received uh, one uh, US dollar for all those patents. I've had no patent royalty. So for me, I have no financial conflict of interest here. It doesn't matter to me one way or the other. What matters is integrity and honesty and truthfulness. Now about the two jabs. Uh, I knew that I was gonna have to travel internationally and that in the absence of vaccination, that was gonna be almost impossible. That has been validated. The fact that I've been able to travel internationally and speak out internationally, initially at the uh, International COVID Summit in Rome, uh, has been crucial, both for my own comprehension and insights into the fact that this uh, coordinated campaign that we've all been experiencing, including the uh, propaganda, censorship, et cetera, of physicians such as yourself, uh, is a global campaign, and it has used the same exact language and strategies. I don't know if you knew, uh, I, I'm not so honored as you as to have been identified by the White House as one of the dirty dozen, but I was identified by the Italian press as one of the dirty dozen uh, because I went to the uh, summit in Rome, although they only managed to come up with 10 pictures. Uh, so I guess in Italy, 10 constitutes a dozen. But uh, it, it has been fascinating in my travels through Europe and uh, down into the Iberian Peninsula to learn uh, from first-person accounts that the same exact strategies that have been deployed in the United States have been deployed all over Europe, Latin America, and Africa to some extent. So I think it was important that I took that sack, I took the jabs, 
in addition to my need for travel, I was suffering from long COVID. I was one of the initial wave of infected with Wuhan 1 because I went to a drug discovery uh, computational conference in um, Cambridge, Massachusetts, and was infected in the end of February with the original strain as part of that initial outbreak there at a time when the virus was still believed to not be on the East Coast. And, that, and Wuhan 1 hit me hard. I had long COVID and there was a lot of buzz in the press, which has not been uh, substantiated by the literature subsequently, that vaccination uh, would address and mitigate the symptoms of long COVID. So for those two reasons, I took the jab, need to travel, suffering long COVID. And uh, there, I thought as an immunologist, there was some logic to the idea that an additional boost of antigen might rev up my immune response and help quench the long COVID symptoms that I was experiencing. And at the time, remember, long COVID was a, another obscure censored community, the people that believed they were suffering from this. And uh, we were censored within that community and defamed and denied and gaslighted. Since then, it's become a major uh, focus area and acknowledged by the CDC and the NIH. But at the time, it was another one of those th things that was uh, many of us were experiencing, but um, the, most of the world was denying existed, uh, and we were considered crazy. So I took the jab, and it turned out that uh, it actually made things worse, particularly after the second dose, when I developed hypertension with a systolic of up to 230, Ooh. and uh, pulse pushing 90 fairly frequently, sometimes up to 100. And so I had the cardiac damage. I also had narcolepsy, uh, other central nervous brain fog, um, a restless leg, a number of symptoms that are known to be associated with the vaccine. And then out came the How Bad Is My Batch website when Jessica Rose and many others analyzed the uh, bears data by lot number. And uh, Jill and I did a search and it found out that my second jab was from one of those highly lethal, mm. um, high risk uh, uh, lot numbers. Uh, and so uh, that's that. Uh, we all make mistakes. I think that the fact that what I found in traveling is that having made that mistake of accepting that vaccine, which I acknowledge now uh, was, was um, absolutely not the proper way to approach this. And by the way, uh, I eventually did get my long COVID cured uh, by a physician who has since had her license pulled, Meryl Nass. Meryl Nass, yeah. Um, uh, because she uh, prescribed ivermectin for me and I had almost immediate relief and symptoms and suddenly a burst in stamina. I was able to out hike my 20 something uh, second child when we were visiting the West Coast along the Big Sur, which was a huge surprise for me. Um, so tip of the hat to Meryl Nass, uh, a, a true truth warrior and another inspirational figure in all of this, I think for all of us. Uh, so that's, that's the brief history on that. Now, the, let's talk about the third leg on this stool uh, of the logic of me as controlled opposition. Um, there is no question I have co-published 
I used to be a business partner with a CIA agent um, for, who was retired from uh, the uh, Defense Threat Reduction Agency where he had had a senior position. I uh, have co-published with a CIA agent who I believe is, uh, according to the attack journalist that the New York Times sent for me, uh, is no longer with the CIA, but who was in Wuhan in the fourth quarter of 2019, who is our uh, arguably our leading expert in gain-of-function research and uh, bioweaponry, Michael Callahan, who called me from Wuhan on January 4th and told me to get my team spun up to uh, address this novel virus, coronavirus, that was uh, causing an outbreak in China. Uh, very strange timing. Uh, and I had a series of interactions with him subsequently until I became completely disillusioned and aware that he was lying to me almost constantly, uh, including about things like whether or not the pathogen was engineered. So uh, I think that um, I can certainly empathize and understand why some might have these concerns. And I've certainly been subjected to uh, plenty of attacks. I think some people weaponize this and use hyperbole to advance their own cause and raise money. But that's, as you know, that's been the experience of both of us and many through this outbreak is there are some that will act in an unscrupulous fashion that's uh, counterproductive to the overall cause of truth and integrity, but uh, it's just the nature of things. I stand by, you know, I, I, don't, I don't ask people um, to uh, accept what I say. I ask people to think for themselves. And I've tried to be truthful, honest, act with integrity, um, uh, provide access to information, try to help people to think through things by themselves. And I've made a, a number of uh, predictions and comments um, and, and analyses that, like you, I, I stand by what I've said. And uh, so I don't, I, whether even if I was controlled opposition, that's kind of irrelevant. The question is not who I am. The question is, what is the information? Is it useful to you? Is it helping you to uh, manage your own affairs, make informed choices about vaccinating your children? Uh, and if so, I think that even, even if I was taking, taking the uh, uh, position of these individuals, even if I was controlled opposition, I su suspect that I'm fairly useful controlled opposition for the op for for those of us that are in this uh, boat together of seeking truth, and uh, and frankly, I all of my contacts with the government now are destroyed. Uh, the colleagues that I used to communicate with regularly at the FDA will no longer take my call. The, my former clients at Defense Threat Reduction Agency. Uh, I don't have any contacts with them anymore. I've dropped my contract with Defense Threat Reduction Agency. Largely, I just, I, I just became disillusioned with them, particularly after I found out that another branch of DITRA is continuing to support the uh, Wuhan uh, Institute of Virology, 
and uh, disclose that. I shared a number of, of fragments of information about what I know that's been going on within DITRA, as well as within NIAID and the NIH. Uh, and um, in doing so, I've, I've compromised that part of my career. I've thrown away, uh, for the second time, by the way, a big uh, uh, career path that I've developed over decades. The first time was when I spoke out to the press about the Jesse Gelsinger tragedy and uh, the abuse of Jim Wilson in the University of Pennsylvania that caused that unfortunate death. And uh, that pretty much ended my career as a gene therapy researcher, academic. And now I've done it again uh, in the case of these vaccines with this, these uh, close longstanding working relationships I've developed over decades uh, with the biodefense enterprise. And so now I find myself in this odd position of being a, a truth teller heretic uh, and, and uh, leader of the opposition uh, to um, what I believe to be egregiously bad comment, conduct on the part of uh, um, key players in my, my former industry of clinical research and regulatory affairs and uh, vaccines, biodefense and medical product development. That's, that's my big beef here, is my, my whole career, all the time I've invested, all the training, all the effort, I'm seeing and largely have seen now the delegitimization of the vaccine enterprise, the uh, delegitimization of the integrity of the CDC, the FDA, and the whole regulatory pathway that's been developed over, over generations now that I've been so deeply trained in, um, they've destroyed uh, my industry. For what? So uh, in sum, I respect uh, the rights of others to, to have their own opinions. And uh, I ask that you uh, judge me fairly. Uh, I don't deny that we all get judged. And uh, I also get criticized because I voted um, historically for Democrats. And uh, um, Steve Bannon has forgiven me, so I guess maybe your, your uh, <laughs> listeners can also. Uh, I think what's important is that, let me put it this way, Dr. McCullough. And I, I'm sure you've been a truth warrior for far longer than I have. But uh, the expression, I was in a dark room, I backed into the light switch, and what I saw, <laughs> what I saw was such that I could never unsee it. I think like a lot of us, I get, there's a huge laundry list. Bobby is an example. <laughs> I mean... Bobby now has common cause with Republican attorney generals all over the United States uh, and, and is increasingly uh, alienated, um, in many cases radically alienated, from uh, his traditional family's party. Uh, I think uh, Mickey Willis is a fantastic example. The gentleman that, who, who I think we all, um, is another one that, that we should all acknowledge uh, the vindication of Plandemic and the thesis behind Plandemic, that the series that he put out that had over a billion views. And Plandemic 3 is about to come out. 
not everything there is right. Not everything Judy said was correct. Uh, but it was incredibly brave to put out the thesis and highlight the fact that there is this history of uh, planning and machinations which precede all that we've experienced. Um, and Mickey was basically run out of his uh, former home was burned and he was run out of the Ohio Valley, uh, now lives in Austin with his uh, production team, has created his own little paradise now. Uh, and, um, and now I understand that there's uh, many in the Ohio Valley that uh, um, regret what they did to him, uh, but uh, the damage is done. Uh, those of us that have been through this are, are never going back. Um, and I suspect you're one of them. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you for the long and uh, detailed explanation. And uh, to support uh, that narrative, my, the summary of what you just said, I think one of the most credible answers is just to look at the information you're putting out. And I know you're not going to toot your own home, but I will for you. Uh, when you announced that uh, you were going on Getter and Joe Rogan's podcast last year because Twitter had banned you, as they have so many others of us, uh, I jumped on that immediately. I, I, I want you to know that I, I follow no one on social media. That's largely an, art, an artifact of the fact that I do not use a cell phone. Uh, I just am pretty much, unless I'm traveling, I don't have another alternative, then I use it as a hotspot. But your getter account is in my view the number one source of information about the updates on this craziness that's happening it, i don't know how you're able to do it but if you are not if you're watching this and you are not <laughs> accessing dr malone's in, information on getter you are missing the big picture this is this is I, keep, I don't, as I said, I don't use it on my cell phone. I just keep the tab open on, on, on my desktop and I refresh it every day or twice a day or three times a day to look at what he's posting because what he's posting is extraordinary. I mean, it, it's, it's up to date. Our, our content delivery system doesn't allow the flexibility that it does with social media account. And we have very limited social media reach and, impair, and uh, distribution because of what the media has done. Uh, the legacy media or social media platforms, but your your content is beyond extraordinary, and I couldn't encourage people more to look at that. Now I'll repeat that's that very again. Very kind. Thank you. Yeah, I'm sure I'm sure Steve Bannon will appreciate that also as a. Oh yeah, uh, you put a lot of Steve's content out there. Sure. Well, he's it, it, to, by way of conflict of interest. I don't hold any shares in Getter, but Steve does. Uh, oh, so. okay. Did not know that. <laughs> Did not know that. Yeah, but yeah. it's extraordinary what you and your wife. I know I, there's no way you could do that as one person. Uh, I suspect you have some help from your wife and maybe others. I don't well, know, but so um, and, yeah, thanks for that. We also now have the Malone Institute, so that's maloneinstitute.org, and we're putting up our our World Economic Forum stuff, our WEF. Um, we have a comprehensive table spreadsheet of all of the young leaders that have been trained over the years and uh, who they are, where they are, when they got trained, what their backgrounds are, all that kind of stuff. So that's another resource. And then the Substack, just like you use Substack, Substack has turned out to be an amazing vehicle. And as you'll recall, there was a strong attempt 
to deplatform the likes of you and I off of Substack. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, that seems to have failed. I think probably in part because uh, we're we're making money for Substack. <laughs> um, but uh, that's that that so that's rwmalonemd.substack.com. That's where our deeper thought pieces are, and uh, you don't have to pay. It's optional. What we do, so you can have a free subscription. It'll just come into your email. And uh, but what we do is restrict the comments to just the paying um, subscribers. And what that does is it cuts out the trollery. Ah, yes, beautiful. And so uh, the truth is that I have for so. Let me just expand on this a little bit. Tucker Carlson is another one of your colleagues uh, that down there, uh, down way down south, in Florida, that, yeah, he's uh, in, uh, Naples, I think. Yeah, does does not use and what a nice guy. He's another just I I'm honored to consider him a friend now, um, and uh, um, another truth warrior, really. Uh, even though he doesn't wear socks. Um, but, but, um, you know, we, the, the, uh, the experiences we've all had have, have been amazing going through this, but, uh, Tucker also doesn't use social media. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I had a long chat with him about this, the, the, the long form interview we did is about an hour, but I think we talked for about three. Mm -hmm. And, uh, for me, uh, the social media is a two-way uh, communication, very much. I receive all kinds of information in learning and feedback on a, on a hourly or daily basis. And all of that goes back in to the content. Mm-hmm. I all Many, many uh, of the links that we post come from people that are sharing information from all over the world with us now consequent to our travel so uh for instance a lot of the uh very interesting literature coming out of the netherlands right now with the dutch uh, farmers protest um information coming out of uh concerning the ukraine conflict that has been uh suppressed by the corporate media and uh um, that I, I get. It's not always right, but um, I think it's important to share these alternative voices as we've all learned how uh, egregious the uh, propaganda and censorship has been uh, and the collusion between the administrative state and uh, the intelligence community and the media uh, has become so apparent. We, we have to seek ways to provide uh, free media, alternative media. Um, uh, And um, I'm grateful that Getter uh, provides a relatively clean interface. It's not free of trolls, but it's certainly a heck of a lot better than Twitter. Uh, And um, Substack, uh, without Substack, um, I I think that our access to information here in the United States would be even further compromised. Um, yeah, you know, there's yours, there's uh, Matt Taby, there's Glenn Grenwald, there's so many fantastic 
fantastic new uh, citizen journalists that are coming up. Steve, Steve Kirsch. Steve, of course, yes. Alex, Steve. Barron, Alex Berenson, so they're all out there. Well, I got a little bit of a bone to pick with Alex. But oh, we'll yeah, I know. He, I couldn't, <laughs> but he's still out there. I mean, he's actually right ahead of me in the... the, the uh, oh, yeah. The, the popular, Any case, popularity poll. But thanks for but the shout out. I, I cannot, I cannot believe what he did to you, Chris. My my impression of him radically changed once he did that. I mean, in real time, I think you were on the same show. It was it was a Fox News broadcast, I believe? And yeah, I it was. Believe- it was a sub for Laura, and it yeah. was another one of those cases where uh, I was actually phoning in from Spain, so it was about three in the morning. <laughs> And I was a bit groggy. I hadn't, uh, I was parked in a little side uh, part of the apartment we were staying in, uh, you know, just barely keeping my eyes open, managed to jam a cup of coffee. And then, then this attack came at me and I was like, whoa, <laughs> what to do about this? Uh, but I guess I did okay at the moment, but it was uh, um pretty egregious uh yeah. and and absolutely not appreciated and i think counterproductive yeah, i agree so uh, well with your original response to the control opposition question there was two questions i had one was you had mentioned that uh, one of the researchers developed the pseudouridine uh which allowed the vaccine to or the the, the jab to be uh produced but did the introduction or the integration of the pseudouridine or your sort of uracil into the the mRNA vaccine, did that address the inflammatory issue that you had observed in your earlier research? And then the second question is that you had a hot lot. Uh, In my discussion with Ryan Cole, he made me aware of the fact that these COVID jabs are not homogenous in any way, shape, or form, and that they're initially designed, of course, to produce the mRNA or provide the mRNA with the instruction set to, to generate this sort of bastardized spike protein. But that that is maybe less than half the messenger RNA in there because the purification technology is apparently so inadequate that it, it seems about a half or more of the M- actual mRNA are actually fragments that still get translated into proteins. And who knows what the heck they're doing? So do you think that the hotlet has something to do with that or is it just a pure homogenization issue and maybe you got a higher concentration or higher uh, amount of the mRNA? So two questions for you. Let's see, now I forgot about the first one. The first um, one was that did the pseudouracil itself change the, reduce the inflammatory oh, yeah. reactions. Okay, so so let's dive into the whole uh, formulation lock consistency and pseudouridine story. Yeah. Um, the science behind the role of pseudouridine in RNA is still evolving. And this is over a decade after Carrico and Weissman uh, had their finding. At the time, and it's, it's useful just to give a jab. Remember, Katie Carrico used to be a Hungarian spy, and uh, Drew Weissman was a uh, Tony Fauci postdoc. So just to set the stage a little bit. Um, Katie had come over to the United States and got a, uh, not really a faculty position, more like a soft money, uh, hang out in the lab and do stuff kind of a job at Penn, and was working together with Drew. And she called me and and I told her about some of the problems with the RNA. And the two of them somehow came up and it may have been her. 
with the recognition that there was emerging information in the literature that the uh, inclusion of pseudouridine, which is a modified natural base, a part of the AUGC, it's the U in RNA, which is naturally modified in the cell in specific places in a highly regulated fashion. And we now know influences things like RNA stability, RNA folding, RNA processing and splicing. It's highly regulated. But that wasn't known at the time. What was known was that there was some early papers suggesting that if RNAs include pseudouridine, they will uh, last longer and um, be less inflammatory or suppress immune responses against cells that had pseudouridine modified mRNA in them. Okay, so on the basis of that, they worked together and incorporated pseudouridine throughout the entire mRNA molecules that were synthesized using the methods that I had originally developed and then purified. And they found that when they injected those, they got a better adaptive immune response and less of the inflammatory response. Now, it was never really clear why that was happening at the time when they filed their patents and subsequently. Um, and now we have some uh, both advances in the science of pseudouridine uh, that are considerable. And the big breakthrough was this cell paper that was published uh, from a group at Stanford, I think in February of this year, February or March, in which they did needle biopsies. So this is the stuff that should have been done before uh, any of this was released out to the public using animal models. But uh, the group did fine needle aspiration of draining lymph nodes in the axilla, so underneath your arm, on the same side as where the injected injection had been given into the deltoid. And they uh, detected the RNA persisting in those lymph nodes for at least 60 days. They didn't test beyond that. And the levels of spike protein produced were far higher and for far longer, up to 60 days. Again, they didn't test beyond that in the blood than are produced by the natural infection. So what we now know in some from all of this is that um, Yes, pseudouridine can it cause RNA to behave in ways that is absolutely not like natural RNA, as I had originally uh, proposed, that being that the RNA is typically degraded within a couple of hours, so that if people did have adverse events, the uh, inciting molecule would be gone, and physicians could elect not to readminister it. But in the current formulation with the pseudouridine incorporated throughout the entire backbone of the RNA, which is something that has never happens in, in situ in a natural situation, these are not natural RNAs. They do suppress the acute inflammatory response, but they also seem to uh, suppress overall adaptive immune responses or immune function. This may be something that's contributing to the immunosuppression that's observed after dosing with these products. That's unresolved, but there's no question that that, that 
adverse event exists, the immunosuppression, nonspecific immunosuppression. So we have now with the pseudouridine modified RNAs, lots of evidence that the discovery of Carrico and Weissman had uh, negative aspects to it, which were not uh, well characterized uh, by Pfizer, Moderna, BioNTech, et cetera. The company CureVac elected not to use the pseudouridine technology and their COVID vaccine actually was, in retrospect, remarkably immunogenic. Perhaps they suffered from uh, too much integrity uh, from a business standpoint. They used a lower dose, and in their trials, it was not detected as being as immunogenic and um, uh, uh, effective as the uh, Pfizer and Moderna products which had the pseudouridine, but in retrospect, that could probably be largely attributed to the fact that they used a significant lower dose mm -hmm. because they were afraid of the adverse events. So in many ways, in my opinion, uh, CureVac was actually much more responsible and they did approach the whole situation using the uh, technology that I had proposed years ago. And, uh, and it appears to have been remarkably effective in my opinion. And uh, I look forward to that company being able to recover. There may still be some indications uh, for the utility of the original form of the invention. Uh, time will tell. Uh, you know, we have to remember that mice and monkeys aren't humans. Right. Uh, but that uh, responsible drug and pharmaceutical development may lead us to something eventually. I'm less sanguine that we're going to cure cancer with this than uh, the uh, CEOs of Pfizer and Moderna are. Uh, I think that the problem with uh, cancer is a lot bigger than just coming up with a better way to deliver a polynucleotide. Um, in terms of the batch and lot consistency, one of the things that's come out is the terms, the contract terms that these companies have been able to negotiate with, with world leaders, which I believe to be particularly egregious, typically include terms which restrict the natural national regulatory authorities from uh, their normal practice of independent assessment of lot consistency, purity, identity, and potency. In other words, normally, in a manufacturing system, when a company manufactures a product uh, and ships it to uh, the consumer, the regulatory agency will either directly or through some surrogate uh, independently verify that the lots are being produced in a consistent fashion, have uh, high quality lot consistency studies, uh, have good um, quality assurance and quality control processes in place. And apparently, the contract terms that have been negotiated not only absolve them from any liability, but absolve them from, a, from regulatory agency oversight at, at virtually every country where they're being manufactured or manufactured or distributed. And these are extremely complex formulation processes. 
and the fundamentals of the nature of these products are that they are susceptible to aggregation. By the way, that's why the polyethylene glycol is in there, is to keep these lipid nanoparticles from aggregating. Um, uh, it's not there for stealth liposome purposes. Uh, and and uh, Naomi Wolf is, is uh, a little off track with some of the things she said about it also. She really doesn't seem to understand the science, but that's what the peg is there for, is to keep these things from aggregating, and yet they still do aggregate. So it, and, I thought the peg was integrated as part of the nanoliposome. Or... It is. It has. So I'm going to talk science -y talk for a moment. It has unusually short acyl side chains compared to the way it's uh, uh, deployed in things like Doxel uh, mm -hmm. for stealth liposome purposes. And, and I, I spoke about this directly uh, with the group in British Columbia, who I've known for decades, that developed the tech mm -hmm. uh, very early on. And uh, so they're, they're, I, I'm not just saying this, I'm not inferring it. I spoke to the guy that invented it, and I asked, why did you put the peg in there? Did you do it uh, to uh, avoid clearance of the particles? He said, absolutely not. Uh, that's why we use the short acyl side chains. So the peg sticks into the lipid nanoparticles in the bottle, mm -hmm. but it's rapidly displaced and it gets knocked out of these things when you put them in the presence of serum proteins mm -hmm. in the normal uh, environment after injection. Uh, because otherwise, if you had these little particles covered with PEG after administration, they wouldn't fuse with cells. They wouldn't work. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So a lot of that, but that's part, that's part of the reason why, for instance, when I got my jab, um, I could almost immediately feel a, an odd sensation in my fingertips, which is very unusual. Um, the, 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 you know, many of us have uh, um, uh, in hyperimmune responses or, or other uh, um, short-acting adverse events or sensations associated with polyethylene glycol injection. And, uh, and the fact that you have these uh, anaphylactic responses to PEG after administration may partially be as a consequence of the fact that it's falling off of the particles right away hmm. and going into your blood. Makes sense. So a lot, of, a lot of things about this that's, that are really uh, deep and kind of complex about the aggregation of the particles, the mechanism by which they interact with cell membranes. Now we have the uh, knowledge that there appear to be gaining entrance into the body. We know that the spike protein isn't just being processed or displayed on cell surface, but becomes associated with mitochondria and is toxic to mitochondrial function, which may underlie a lot of the uh, loss of energy and other sensations that people have. Um, Ryan has uh, done a recent uh, workup of some vials that uh, were expired, so they're not really fully representative, but he does apparently find under the scope uh, plate-like objects. Um, they're still, you know, and this is what's been termed the nano razor blades, uh, these are uh, hard to say how they are, are uh, deriving. The, the nature of these formulations is such that um, they're very susceptible to all kinds of the very complex aggregation phenomena that apparently are not being well characterized 
have not been published, have not been publicized, um, and are denied. Nevertheless, there they are under the microscope. Uh, whether these involve graphene oxide or not is, is to be determined. Initially, I thought that was crazy talk, but the unwillingness of the pharmaceutical companies to disclose their ingredients, which is just mind-boggling. Um, I think it was Paraguay or Uruguay where recently where this was raised in a court case. They're, the governments, because of their contracts, and Pfizer in particular, but Moderna also, absolutely refuse to disclose what's in the tube. That, that's completely contrary to anything I've ever encountered in any teaching I've ever had about regulated products. Um, there's something amiss here. There's no question. Well, thank you for expanding on that. I'm wondering if you can comment on the new trivalent vaccine that just got recently approved for, for the fall. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, yeah, so, and how it's likely to radically increase the, the side effects. A good, good fact point, the uh, observation of what's happening, though, is that the adoption rate of this will be radically diminished. I think we're down to under 30% of the people who are willing to take another jab now. And I'm, I, to expand on that, I'm encouraged that we're succeeding in alerting parents in particular. As you know, throughout this, the, the hill I've chosen to die on, we all like to toss that term around, mm -hmm. has been in trying to stop mandates for children. And I'm sorry I haven't been more successful. I'd say it, it's a, um, I think the adoption rate is under 20% for kids and maybe even under 10% in some communities. I mean, the, yeah. the, many and parents I'm, are getting I'm hearing, it. I'm hearing for the boosters and uh, for the uh, little tiny ones, um, it's really been atrocious in terms of the uptake. So I do think we're getting through. Uh, so um, the trivalent story. This, this goes back to the logic of influenza vaccines. Uh, the European uh, Medicines Agency has taken a different approach historically from the, uh, from the FDA and the CDC. In, in EMA, uh, the annual influenza vaccines get a short initial trial um, because they are annually updated. Here in the States, there's been a decision that so long as you use the same manufacturing process, you can change, truly, you change the nature of the drug. Um, and they have determined that for influenza, so long as you use the same manufacturing process, you can switch out the antigens expressed. So that would be akin to going from Wuhan 1 to uh, BA.5 uh, uh, Ninja. Um, uh, you can you can switch these things out on an annual basis with the what in the United States is a quadrivalent influenza vaccine now, two A strains and two B strains, uh, and that that will be acceptable and requires no clinical trials for this historic uh, um, <laughs> vaccine product. Um, and so uh, reasoning by analogy, apparently, the FDA and the CDC have now concurred that a similar strategy shall be taken for these unlicensed experimental use authorized products that have uh, um, produced a adverse event signal like no vaccine ever in history, uh, which they deny, uh, but um, and, and are clearly not stopping infection, replication, and spread of the viruses. 
Uh, sorry, Washington Post called me a liar for that. But now with this latest uh, FDA um, position, there has been acknowledgement that the Wuhan one based spike vaccines using the genetic vaccination technology, whether it's mRNA or adenovirus, are not working. And so they have to update them. So what they've decided is they're going to now use the flu model, which uh, will enable them to uh, continue the manufacturing process, which as we've just discussed is poorly characterized, uh, not uh, really adequately provided with uh, oversight and lot consistency. And we know from the how bad is my batch analysis, the lot consistency is foreign. Uh, but that's all apparently okay. Um, and uh, let's, uh, you know, one, one antigen is good, so let's go to three. Uh, the problem is multifaceted. Typically, when you do this, you maintain approximately the same dose of each antigen. So that would be in the case of Moderna, I mean, from Pfizer, we're going to go from 50 to 150 uh, mics of RNA in a jab. Uh, let's hope they don't do that. But even if they only double the dose, then we know that the adverse events are going to go up considerably. Uh, but then if we examine the underlying thesis, the science of what they're saying, they're saying we're going to continue to administer Wuhan 1 spike and add uh, BA4 and BA5, the latest Omicron variants that have evolved to escape the jab uh, from the Wuhan one. What they completely ignored in all of that regulatory review is the extensive peer-reviewed literature in the top journals in the world that document immune imprinting, otherwise known as original antigenic sin, which is the reason why the flu vaccines are have such a horrid record currently in the annually jabbed is because what we have done is driven the immune response to a focused group of antigens and particularly have biased the immune response in vaccine recipients towards those things that they've been previously exposed to. So your immune system is uh, like your own personal experience. I, I like to use the analogy to those of us uh, that have a DOD experience background, we're always best prepared to fight the last war. Your immune system is the same way. So what we now know is that people that have been exposed to Wuhan 1, such as I was, or received uh, Wuhan 1 vaccines are imprinted, driven in their immune response to respond to the spike antigens associated with Wuhan 1. And uh, the Omicron variants have evolved to exploit that bias. And the science paper that came out, I think, three weeks ago, very deep, intense work from a British team that looked at healthcare workers over time and carefully tracked their, their immune responses. They had all received vaccines. What they found was that the exposure of Wuhan 1 followed by the vaccines followed by Omicron infection was driving a deficit of a further defect 
in the ability of those people to respond to Omicron, which is why they are getting multiple serial Omicron infections, and a fraction of them are becoming chronically infected with Omicron. This is why we're seeing the highly jabbed in the hospital. We have done it to them by forcing them or enticing them to get vaccinated through all this propaganda and all the enticements and the mandates and the pressure, et cetera, et cetera. We have created a situation in which they have to keep getting vaccinated, I guess. That's the logic being promoted by the CDC. Um, we have to keep vaccinating them at frequent intervals because the vaccination is damaging their ability to uh, control infection of these escape mutants. And now the CDC and the FDA have signed off on the idea of a trivalent vaccine that I couldn't have imagined a better design uh, if I wanted to, to drive this immune imprinting phenomena and make people less able to resist Omicron infection because it includes Wuhan 1 plus two Omicron strains. It is exactly the opposite of what's needed. Um, it, is, it is like Bert Vandenbosch's worst nightmare. Um, and uh, they are doing it blindly without even bothering to read the peer-reviewed literature that describes this. This is insanity. It is mass psychosis at its worst. All right. Well, thank you for that detailed answer. And to follow up on that, the alternative is to not get the jab. So that would mean you have natural immunity. And I think you posted a publication showing that uh, natural immunity is 97% effective against COVID-19 after 14 months. Now, let me break that down. 97%. That is absolute risk. That is not relative risk because you might say, oh yeah, the, the, back, the jab was 95%, 96% is effective. That was relative risk. Yeah, and the absolute risk oranges. was way under 1%. And actually that was after a few months. After multiple months, it drops into negative range territory. I mean, it increases your risk. Yes, of yes, yes, yes. It is, it is uh, negatively effective. Um, yeah. the, the jabs are. Mind boggling. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that gets to this immune imprinting. There's also uh, the talk about uh, antibody-dependent enhancement that's still not really been fully resolved. There is a lot of very deep, complex immunology um, associated with what we've been doing to people all over the world. And it, it involves every single facet of this product, the lipids themselves, the formulations, the structure of the RNA, and the payload that's being expressed. Each of them are associated with their own profile of adverse events. Um, and that is really clearly seen by the early Moderna data that was disclosed only to their shareholders in their phase one data of their influenza vaccine product using the same tech, where at the 100 microgram dose, 80% of the subjects in the phase one trials had grade two or grade three adverse events. Um, so that's the formulations and the same RNA chemistry, but no spike protein. So that shows that it's not just the spike. I, this, this is got to go down in history as um, 
one of the most profound failures of regulatory science in in the 20, 20th and 21st century that that and the the craven cowardice of the FDA regulatory authority to address this um, has disclosed, I think, all over the world, uh, led to a recognition that the FDA has been captured by the pharmaceutical industry. It is profoundly corrupt and has to be uh, completely rebuilt. Uh, I, I, the, the damage that's been done um, to the reputation of uh, the American regulatory process globally is profound. It's not just here. Um, as I had suggested, again, almost two years ago, if they continue on this pathway, they are going to destroy the entire regulatory process as well as any faith that anyone ever had in the vaccine enterprise. And here we are. Yes, indeed. But there is a converse perspective in that rather than being the most outrageous failure in history of regulatory functions, it may be the most dramatic example of a success in the, the regulatory capture by industry to implement their nefarious deeds and implement it at a level that is be, be beyond, it, it just, it's not just the administration and the, uh, the propaganda and the uh, funding, billions of dollars that, that the government puts in to, to promote this, but it's, it's actually permeated its way into the very hospitals where people go who are injured and damaged by these vaccines. And I'm sure you're familiar with it. The process that essentially conceals, absolutely hides the fact that these injured people were ever jabbed. They've conveniently eliminated that or, or give them unknown, an unknown status, even though they have their vaccine card with them. They refuse to put it into the, the, the medical record in a way that you could easily make these correlations and data if you were truly committed to finding out what the truth, what the, what the, the truth is. Yeah, no, I, I, so you're right, and, and this gives rise to the term that I believe was originally coined by um, former President Eisenhower. Oh, sure. Um, of the medical pharmaceutical industrial complex. Uh, we, what one of the, there, you know, there's this, the big, big picture here is the how did all this happen and why? But one of the things that I think has become really apparent is that there is a component of this that is an emergent phenomena of a series of trends that have developed over the last couple of decades. And one of the big ones there is the consolidation of what were previously independent, often not-for-profit hospitals under an integrated system of, of mega chains that are controlled by investment capital, investment funds, um, and just like all of the industries that have been captured by BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street, um, they act in accordance with the uh, interests of their uh, um, controlling shareholders. And that, you know, we, we hear all this jibber-jabber in uh, the corporate media, which is also owned by the same people, um, 
about uh, the issues of uh, available beds. I mean, we've heard this again and again and again and again. Oh my God, we're gonna run out of ICU beds and then the mortality rate will go through the roof. Well, if you unpack that, um, it's been shown again and again, the best way to keep people from dying of COVID is to keep them out of the hospital. Hospitals ad administer this toxic drug called remdesivir, particularly in the United States. They have treatment protocols with ventilation. They're killing people. Um, and they have these perverse financial incentives to do so, uh, courtesy of our government. Hospitals uh, have adopted practices to maximize revenue by minimizing unoccupied beds, including ICU beds. And um, so we have all of this. This is another thing that pushes out the fear point. Oh, good heavens. We're going to uh, um, overwhelm our hospital bed capacity when this has been a decade-long trend to minimize unoccupied hospital beds and thereby maximize revenue. So there's a, a series of uh, drivers that have led to this situation where um, we have the integration of the entire hospital complex uh, their control of the physicians, their integration, because the physicians now largely all work for the hospital chains um, and their various satellite organizations. There's very few independent docs anymore. Um, the physicians that are being trained are being trained on a, a treatment by protocol strategy rather than the old school approach the patient and try to understand what the patient's true needs are and treat the patient. Now they're, they're, now they're treated by checklists. These are checklists that are developed, uh, as far as I'm concerned, illegally, outside of the mandate and mission of the NIH. They're developed by the NIH largely, something it's never done in the past. Um, the people developing them at the NIH are not frontline practicing physicians. Um, the hospitals are deploying these protocols that are killing people. They don't allow physicians to practice otherwise, except in few cases. My friend Paul Merrick is a great example of what happens with docs who buck that trend. And then the same integrated system has also captured the uh, um, licensing authorities in the various states. They have captured the pharmacist associations. And so you have pharmacists being instructed not to um, fill prescriptions written by physicians. I mean, the whole thing has been integrated and controlled to the benefit of pharmaceutical profit and the logic of uh, protocol-based treatments that uh, are very good in terms of uh, controlling legal liability and costs for hospitals, but absolutely horrid for patients. Indeed, and you know, sort of an expansion of that in the fabulous Pfizer fraud is this Paxlovid, which uh, the, the U.S. government bought five, over $5 billion worth. And even despite Fauci not taking it just once, but taking it twice and getting exactly what you predicted, which is shocking to me that he, he apparently has bought the narrative. He believes in it. Otherwise, why would he take Paxlovid? But, but the Paxlovid... The government purchased another $5 billion, put over $10 billion, which 
classifies Paxlovid now as a super blockbuster drug because they sold over $10 billion. It's very rare, I mean, to get a super blockbuster status, but they've done it with a worthless drug that doesn't do a darn thing except you make you worse. But they've been able to manipulate the system to get billion, to, 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 to centrally suck out billions of dollars to these malevolent indust- industries. So Paxlovid is uh, a great example that you've given, uh, illustrating the profound corruption that has occurred here, uh, the failure to provide adequate regulatory oversight, insist on rigorous clinical trials, solid data, um, and uh, yet the money train just rolls. And uh, it was $3.2 billion that were just awarded to Pfizer for this triple jab that is going to go in to all of us ostensibly uh, in the fall, right before the elections, um, uh, without any clinical testing based on the influence of vaccine logic. I mean, the, 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 uh, I, I, anybody that is awake has to be able to see for themselves, they don't have to listen to the likes of you or I, um, how deeply corrupted the system has become. And it is all, this bridges into the whole world of, of the economists in, in what is really going on here, uh, in that this is all based on funny money. It's all based on fiat currency that's being uh, printed and borrowed from the Fed, uh, which is owned by the same group of uh, characters that control these large investment funds. Uh, people are, are often confused uh, by the corporate media to think that the Federal Reserve is a branch of the federal government. It's absolutely not, it's a private bank. Um, and uh, this is all money borrowed and injected into the economy at a time of uh, growing hyperinflation uh, for drugs that we don't need uh, because uh, the federal government is completely captured and the administrative state has partnered with corporate America in global corporatism. That's, that's really what we have. It's one of the, I, taught, I spoke a moment ago about the emergent phenomena of all of these trends that have been developing for decades. And this is kind of the fluorescence of it, the, the culmination of a whole series of things that have been going on kind of behind the scenes, uh, largely controlled and covered up. Uh, and, and now the, if, there's, if there's a silver lining here, I think it's that for many of us, including myself, who had been bought into the system, uh, we the data, the information, the experience is so powerful that um, it is opening eyes everywhere. And like I said, with that example, once you back into the light switch and you and it flips on and you see what's going on, you can't ever unsee it. So, have you abandoned? your embracing of the whole vaccine uh, par- paradigm with respect to other any vaccines you would consider at this point now that you I I'm now to the, point, the light switch <laughs> yeah I'm I'm now to the point and I'm aware of data that I can't discuss uh, that's still being held and, and it's I have to respect the rights of the people that hold the data uh, but um I'm, I'm completely in the same camp now as Bobby 
Kennedy in that. Oh, right, victory. Um, <laughs> I, I believe that the entire vaccine enterprise needs to be revisited. And uh, we, we do not have, there's no, it's unequivocal. We do not have the data to support the safety and efficacy of the current pediatric vaccine schedule and all of the components of the pediatric vaccine schedule need to be reassessed for risk benefit ratio. Yeah, there's both never been any safety products, No safety trials. Both ever. as individual products and as combined products. Rabies, uh, I think I heard you say rabies. Um, rabies is interesting in, in um, some areas where it is highly prevalent, like some areas in the Middle East and India. Uh, and, um, you know, in those areas where children are walking to school um, and there's a large population of feral dog, uh, and in some outlying areas in Iran, Afghanistan, places like that, where you still have predatory wolf packs that are subject to infection or risks of people being exposed to um, uh, infected uh native populations of wild animals, um, then those at high risk uh, may well be justified in taking rabies vaccines. Uh, I thought that was only after a bite. I don't think it's- No, you, no there's, there's actually uh, prophylaxis in India. Oh, I um, did not know that. Uh, so, uh, and in, in Iran also. Uh, so, so there are, there in, in, Tetanus, tetanus is kind of edgy um, because uh, it turns out the incidence of tetanus prior to implementation of the vaccine was remarkably low. And so again, I think, and then, then there's this, uh, these data that demonstrate that a lot of the uh, uh, reduction in the classic pediatric vex, uh, diseases uh, preceded the deployment of the mid-century vaccines, such as polio, and is most logically attributed, the vast bulk of that reduction, to improve general public health practice, including clean water. Um, in a way, the vaccine enterprise is operating off of stolen valor. Uh, the, the people that really deserve the credit for much of that reduction in the risk uh, to our children from the classic pediatric infectious disease people are the ones that have done the heavy lifting to improve water supply, purity, integrity, safety, um, and other public health practices, uh, which is, by the way, the, the common shared experience with many infectious disease. So if I can give an example, I was deeply involved in spearheading the development of the Ebola vaccine that was originally developed by the Canadians. Uh, and I got it licensed to Merck and that's the Ebola vaccine we have now. And many people think uh, mistakenly that the West African Ebola outbreak was controlled by the vaccine, that's false. The West African Ebola outbreak was controlled by teaching people in those indigenous regions it's a bad idea to have their deceased relative lie in state and have a family uh, or community gathering uh, to um, uh, recognize and respect the deceased 
in which people would touch and kiss the corpse because the virus persists on the skin for a long period of time. And that was really what was driving the explosive infection rate. And once people were taught, no, with this disease, if you perish from this, you got to burn them or get them in the ground right away. And you shouldn't be touching them. And you shouldn't be engaging in these historic burial practices that they were doing. That's what quenched it. It wasn't the vaccine. The history in public health has been that the most effective measures in controlling infectious disease have not been vaccination. They've been modification in behaviors. Mm-hmm. So we were just speaking about monkeypox. Monkeypox has about a 30-day period of infectivity after infection. And this whole thing could be shut down by a period of abstinence for about a month. We'll just leave it at that. I don't want to go deep into the latest and greatest about the mode of transmission and the new side effects that are being observed. And the uh, particularly community that seems to be involved in this transmission cycle with monkeypox. But um, I think it's outside of our scope. But the point is that a lot of these infectious disease things can be best handled through uh, um, good uh, public health practices. And uh, it's kind of a um, uh, vaccinology and epidemiology and infectious disease 101 topic about how all of this works, why we have pediatric disease, um, the uh, interaction between uh, viruses and the uh, in herd immunity and the reproductive coefficient um, and the fact that children have such powerful immune systems and ability to overcome infection and literally learn from it. It's a part of their learning, just like their brains are plastic and capable of learning at alarmingly high rates. Likewise, their immune systems are on high alert and they need to be exposed to antigens. Um, And that provides typically with natural infection, longstanding if not lifelong protection against diseases which if they're encountered as an adult are often much more severe and COVID seems to be an example of that. Uh, Diatribe over. Well, I want to thank you for everything you've done. And I want, you know, this, you're just amazing, amazing human being that's so, totally committed and, and uh, courageous and brave to share everything you've done and sacrifice pretty much most of the things you've accomplished in your professional career. So I'm wondering what, what's your perspective? What is your, what, do you have a plan? Do you have any goals, uh, you know, to address the, global tyranny that's evolving. And, you know, it's impressive not is, you know, I neglected to mention earlier, it's not only your ability to share solid science at a deep level, but also to integrate in that the, the movement for personal freedom and liberty. I mean, you, you have done a really good job of that. So I'm wondering, you know, do you have any goals or plans or strategies to, to, to bring those to fruition? I'm getting more and more, uh, I could call it pressure, recommendations, or nudging uh, to get involved in politics. Uh, I don't really want to do that. Uh, I, I live uh, an hour and a half south of D.C. because I don't want to live in D.C. Yeah, I think that might be a better <laughs> option. Stay out of politics. <laughs> I'm, I, but yet, 
um, here I am, like you, at a stage in my career, uh, in my life, the trajectory of my life, where I have an opportunity that I didn't seek mm-hmm. to address a profound set of problems. And the, the, the tide of events has placed me in a position uh, where I've, I've been serving in a leadership role, not because I sought it, but because it's kind of been thrust upon me. And so having that, it would be um, a, a dereliction to not try to use it for good. I mean, I'm a physician, right? <laughs> I want to help people. I didn't go into weapons development like my father <laughs> and my father-in-law. I chose to go into medicine. Right. Um, that was a reason for that. I wanted to help people. Uh, and now I found my, find myself in perhaps the greatest opportunity to, to provide benefit and help to people that I've ever had in my life. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to turn away from that, even though it would require me to get involved in things that I find very distasteful. The, um, uh, what I have learned in trying to just follow the leads, follow the money, follow the power, uh, has been a, a gradual reveal of all of these things that I resisted getting into, like the World Economic Forum, uh, and, um, and the administrative state and all of these aspects of what's been going on with globalism, which by the way, appears to now be starting to collapse. Uh, and, and in particular, I think I could, uh, provide some benefit in public policy in the area of the health and human services and what's happened there and what needs to be rebuilt. And also I'm increasingly being brought into discussions internationally, trying to envision a better way forward. So, and then of course there's the book, which Mm -hmm. uh, um, the title of the book included not only the lies my government told me, but the better way forward in that, that has been the most perplexing part of the whole book to write, the hardest lift, um, because uh, as you di- dive into this stuff, um, it's, it's not very pretty. Uh, it's hard to see a way forward that um, uh, is not rather bleak uh, in, in the world that's uh, being envisioned by these unelected uh, corporatist powers, um, these public-private partnerships that uh, seek to control our lives in every facet and aspect. Um, but having focused on this now for months and months and months, in part out of necessity because I had to finish the book, um, I, I'm starting to see a path forward. And the recent Supreme Court decisions of which the abortion one is just one. Uh, um, The West Virginia case involving CO2 emissions and the uh, um, attempt to refocus the administrative state on its uh, true uh, scope of authorization um, is, is giving rise to some legal pathways that 
I, I find are, are giving me hope. I think that a partnership between um, uh, attorneys such as uh, Bobby and CHD, and there's many other organizations uh, um, that are more constitutionalist in their, in their framing and background, uh, together with people that are knowledgeable about the inner workings of the administrative state and HHS, um, I think offers opportunity. And uh, if I'm called to serve in those ways, whether in an advisory capacity or in a direct capacity, I'll hold my nose and try to do my best. And I, and I do, but I think um, even just putting out written documentation about what the issues are and what the options are in terms of public policy uh, certainly gives people a way to think about things and start to imagine a better way forward. So um, I'm, I'm gonna continue writing, Jill and I, and uh, speaking and being more active uh, in, in the alternative media. I'm grateful to you for your work and your, uh, the opportunity to be on your broadcast. Um, and, and I think that's kind of the way the rest of my career is gonna run is uh, still trying to help people, but in a very different way than before, um, helping them with teaching and knowledge and reassurance. And I think also um, empathy. Uh, I, I, you know, it goes back, I keep saying those three core principles of, of integrity and community and dignity and trying to help inject this into public discourse and into our public life, this logic, um, that we, we truly uh, will be better off if we try to be kind, but also I think it's reasonable that um, all of us need to start thinking about intentional communities, about how we can build local sustainable community capabilities because there, there is a reasonable chance that these uh, forces uh, that are very corporatist, and I suggest the term corporatism is analogous to the term fascism. Fascism is not a bunch of young men running around in Charlottesville waving tiki torches and yelling racist slogans. Fascism is corporatism. It's the uh, alignment and partnership between administrative state and corporations. And, and that has come to such a point that I think that those of us that are awake need to uh, really think hard about preparing ourselves, not overreacting. Um, we've, but this is another term that has become a pejorative, being a prepper. But is, is it wrong to think through strategies that you would use to protect yourself and your family in the event that we have um, catastrophic famine, which many are predicting may be occurring in many nation states over the next few years, certainly even over the next year to a year and a half, um, to protect ourselves from uh, the deprecations of uh, a social credit system 
um, the consequences uh, for our own finance, such as we saw deployed against the truckers in Canada. Um, there's, there's some forces at play here that are this whole public health thing is just a facet, a ruse. I'm completely convinced that the reason why so many of these policies make no sense from a public health standpoint is they're not about public health. It's hard. It's, we, we are all repelled. Those of us that are grounded in fundamental principles of morality, some people use the term Judeo-Christian ethics. When, when we encounter these things, we, we intrinsically reject them. It can't possibly be true can't possibly be true that there are people that believe in things like a need to depopulate the world. It can't possibly be true that um, there are people who believe in the effects of the current industrial revolution resulting in a situation in which we have too, many, too much labor, too much population, and that has to be reduced. Um, and that they are willing to take action to do so. It's just repugnant. But to, to not acknowledge that these people exist, that they have power, that they think this way, that they discuss these matters, that they make these plans, that's like being an ostrich, just being a Pollyanna. This is happening. It's not, it's not just a figment of my imagination or yours or or uh, some conspiracy theorist somewhere. I mean, the, the Klaus Schwab published The Great Reset four months in. Um, you know, the evidence that a, a lot of this is being manipulated, hence the fear porn, is overwhelming in my opinion. And uh, I cannot reconcile the um, uh, abundant examples of public health mismanagement and misalignment um, between the need and the policies, unless I account for the underlying uh, financial agendas, uh, geopolitical power agendas that are in play right now. And, and I think that those of us, again, circling back, that are still committed to integrity and dignity and community need to circle the wagons and think through how to prepare for a future in which all of these agendas are coming to fruition, they're coming to a head, and uh, we need better be ready for them. Okay, well, that's a, a great way to end it. I want to thank you so much for your bravery, your courage, your commitment to the fundamental principles of the Hippocratic Oath and for the ability to shift your positions. And when you backed into the light switch and the light came on, you realized you needed to shift and you did. And it's very clear you're a man of faith and you've got light within you as we all do. And you're shining light to, to convert the great reset into the great reject. So thank you. Yeah. Um, so as, as my friend JP Sears said, stay awake, my friend. <laughs> yeah, you've got a lot more to do. And uh, we're, we're so grateful for all you've already done, but even more so for what you're going to do. So thanks a lot. I quite sincere 
in my respect uh, for the journey you've taken and uh, the positions you've taken and my empathy uh, for you as someone that's been subjected to these things that I've been experiencing, but for far longer. And yet I gotta say that you are a, an example to me that gives me hope uh, that um, I can persevere through this and, and your example gives me courage. Um, so I thank you for that. Wow. Wasn't expecting that. <laughs> I appreciate you sharing those thoughts. Thank you.